Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. In today's episode, I am talking to two leading economists, Dieter Helm, and Diane Coyle, and we are discussing the history and the future of the idea of sustainability. What would it mean to live in a sustainable world and what's gone wrong with the way that we measure all the things that we do? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and you can subscribe for a special rate if you just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. We recorded this conversation at the end of last week. Dieter Helm was in Oxford. Diane Coyle was in Cambridge. Apologies if the sound isn't quite what you're used to on this podcast. This is a conversation about lots of things, and it is in part a conversation about economics and economic measurement. Dieter Helm has written a new book called Legacy about the sustainable economy. And one of the things that he is arguing for is a new way of accounting for all of the things that we do. Diane Coyle has long argued that GDP is the wrong measure of economic well-being. It leaves out not all, but almost all of the really important stuff. This is also in part an argument about history and the history of how we do these things. In Dieter Helm's book, he makes the case that economics is trapped with a toolbox and a mindset that is decades, possibly even a 100 years out of date. We're still in the world of John Maynard Keynes, and we need to leave that world behind. And that's where we start this conversation. I know a lot of people aren't immediately drawn to discussions about economics and the history of economic theory, but do stick with this. This is really a conversation about what the next British Labour government, or indeed any government, can do to make sure that the world that we live in is not just sustainable, but survivable. That said, I begin by asking Dieter Helm what it is that Keynes left us with as a legacy when it comes to our crazy world of mindless consumption. So, Dieter, this is at the end of your book, but Keynes, for instance, part of the appeal was he was rejecting Victorian constraint. And in that context, consumption is liberation, right? It's, it's part of being free from a moralized world, a constrained world, a stifling, stuffy world. And you say at the end of your book, but in a way now, that's what we're trapped by. You know, the, the, the stifling, the stuffiness of our world is the world of, I think you call it democratic, conspicuous consumption. And it really resonated with me in a sense that the Bloomsbury now, the Bloomsbury mentality now is to be liberated from relentless, endless focus on image and influencers and the world of social media, all of it geared around consumption. And that is one of the ways in which 100 years on, it is a completely different world. We are, you know, these people are, are Victorians and we need to be liberated from them. 
Well, it's one dimension of them being Victorians. But of course, Keynes and Lytton Stracey et al. were getting away from the Victorians because they particularly hated the concept of thrift and savings. And of course, in Keynesian analysis, investment causes savings, not the classical idea that you have to save in order to invest. And it really is, I mean, when, when Keynes formed his views, it wasn't informing the views in Bloomsbury in the 1930s. They formed their views before the First World War in the Edwardian period. There was Sidgwick and others at Cambridge who had essentially nailed themselves the utilitarian mask. And then what was going on parallel with that, partly Marshall did it, who introduced the idea of marginal utility. So it's not just consumption, it's consumption at the margin which drives both the micro and actually the macro too. And partly that helped people, Veblen made this point in the United States, this helped people justify the inequality that was emerging everywhere because once you said that people were worth in wages their marginal utility, it was easy to say some people's marginal utility was a hell of a lot higher than other people's. But it drove you in this consumption framework. And the consumption framework leads us to today where we have a tyranny of thinking, you know, how well is our economy doing? Oh, well, are retail sales going up? You know, have we got even more sales and footfall in the shops and on the, you know, the Amazon platforms? And a sustainable economy, of course, has consumption, but it's a sustainable consumption net of looking after the core assets, including and very importantly, the natural capital of the atmosphere, the soils, the biodiversity. And it's only after you've done that and you paid for the pollution you're causing, that then, of course, you can have the consumption. Diane, is it fair to say, and you've written a lot about this, about the limitations of the ways in which we measure economic well-being, but is it fair to say that those measures which were originally designed to free us up from moralising or other kinds of expectations have become their own trap? It's not like footfall and GDP and everything else come to us as a sort of moral imperative. Well, maybe it does a bit, but it's it's the thing by which we are constrained because we can't think outside of that box. Well, we've certainly become trapped by thinking about GDP, although that started in a very pragmatic way and the moralising about growth and making that the be-all and end-all of policy came much later in, uh, in the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, but particularly the Sputnik moment when the US and the OECD decided that the West had to not just have a high level of employment, as Keynes advocated, but but uh, continuing growth. I, I guess where I might um, differ a bit from Dieter is in thinking about what we would want as a kind of sense of progress in the economy. So, of course, we need it to be sustainable. But I think you can incorporate sustainability by thinking about net GDP, and that would include measuring the use of natural capital and uh, netting that off as well. But there's very standard economic theory about that. And indeed, that's one of the reasons that sustainability measures are becoming increasingly embedded in official national account statistics. And the next revision in 2025 will see much more of that. But the other change that I observe at the moment is this emphasis on not on consumption, not even on sustainable consumption, but on production as well and on people as citizens. So this idea, particularly advocated by Danny Roderick, of productivism, that we would want as a nation or a community to make sure that we had the capability of uh, producing good jobs in future and um, 
not ending up hollowed out and having only the very rich and and the bad jobs left behind. So this idea that you're not just not just thinking about consumption is a change that I observe not just in economic academic economics but in policy with things like Biden's IRA and Chips Act. So Diane wrote this extremely good book on GDP, which outlines uh, the frame of going forward. And I just wanted to just clarify what I think is different between what I'm suggesting and what people do with modified GDP. So the commonality that we, which I think we agree about is it's about the capabilities of citizens. And, you know, there's a moral choice here. It's an ethical choice. I'm following a March Sen, and I'm thinking about a positive freedom concept, not a utilitarian concept. I want to enable people to choose how to live their lives. I'd quite like them to be happy, but it's not the objective to make people happy, which is what utilitarianism is about. But in my world, in order to make sure they have those core assets, which is the way citizens can engage with society and engage in the economy and be productive and all the things that Dan correctly identifies, I think of those assets, those assets, not the flows, GDP is a flow concept, the assets as being assets in perpetuity. And therefore, absolutely core to the sustainable economy for me is that we must, we have a duty to do capital maintenance, to fix the roof when the tiles come off, before we consider what's left for consumption. So think about the potholes. Think about the dire state of the railways. Think about the state of the school roofs at the moment with the rack concrete. This is all capital maintenance to me. And what's more radical is, I think, fixing climate change, future people having a decent atmosphere and a decent climate, and fixing the biodiversity in the ecosystem is a duty of capital consumption. And what follows from that is it must come out of current income. It's pay as you go, as we used to do before the great pay when delivered and privatisation programmes after 1980. Now, once you recognise it's our generation's responsibility to pay out of current income to do that capital maintenance, before we start enhancing anything, then you get a really different baseline, which doesn't accord with any measure of GDP, however adapted, and the adaptations that Diana has in mind are, of course, better than what we've got. This is a stocks and assets concept, assets in perpetuity, capital maintenance, no depreciation of these core assets, and therefore no capital consumption. And if we were to redo the national accounts on that basis, we would find that we're in a very different position than we currently are. And of course, we wouldn't be borrowing for capital maintenance, which is what's proposed by both major parties and, in fact, is currently going forward. That's an extra burden on the next generation. So I think we're we're agreeing more than I um, imagined in that case because I certainly agree on the need for a focus on assets and have done a lot of work on inclusive wealth, which is exactly that kind of broad balance sheet for the economy. And um, all I'm pointing out, I guess, is that you can use that to construct a net GDP measure and the national accounts will be going closer to that net GDP measure. But I too like the SEN um, framework. And indeed, um, at the Bennett Institute, we're putting out next week a paper on universal basic infrastructure, which is exactly this idea of trying to look at what assets should citizens be able to have access to. And as you say, Dita, um, maintaining that is 
is key and we are much poorer than we think we are on that basis. Yeah. My understanding of this is that GDP, the, the, the figures that get reported, those measures, it's good, it's bad because we're growing or we're not growing, falls between two stools in the sense that on the one hand, it doesn't take nearly enough account of future generations, of long-term investment and so on. And on the other hand, in raw democratic political terms, it's insensitive to the immediate pressures that people feel. So I was thinking about this in the context of something I read recently, the frustration in the Biden White House that the economy is looking good on these measures. And there may be lots of reasons for thinking these are the wrong measures anyway. But nonetheless, unemployment is low, growth is good and so on. And yet Biden is deeply unpopular and American voters are saying this economy is not working for us. And the reason it's not working for them is the immediate pressures they face do not seem to tally with this good news story they're being fed from the White House. And so there is still, I think, a tension there, right, between Dieter and what you're both talking about, which is an ability for government and indeed for bureaucracy to measure in such a way that takes sufficient account of long-term obligations and future generations. And at the same time, these people are going to be under huge pressure from that kind of democratic immediacy. And Dieter, I, I feel in your book, you are facing up to this in a way, that you are recognizing that to shift to this mindset, this this what might look to some people like a, a question of statistics, is actually going to require a fundamental rethink of the ways in which we allow certain kinds of pressures to impact on political decision making. Because otherwise, it does feel like it's, it, you know, we're caught between two things that are pulling in different directions. GDP is between the long term and the short term, and it fails on both scores. But the short term and the long term are still going to be at odds with each other. Well, I, I think, I mean, you hit the really incredibly important point. But I think in the latter part of my book, I try to address that question. So, you know, when I think of citizens and what citizens need in order to participate in society, I think they should have those assets and access to those assets. And I think we should think very hard about, I discuss it in the book, about a modified version of universal basic income. So if you think back to after the Second World War, when the welfare state was set up, you know, the idea was that education and health in particular, everyone should have access to this independent of their ability to pay as citizens. But it was true too of electricity and transport and the water utilities. It's just they were done through the nationalised industries and there was massive cross-subsidy to make sure that people were included and incorporated because these are industries with massive fixed costs and it really is a choice as to who pays them. It's true now. Who pays for renewables? It's not a matter of switching from one supplier to another. It's a tax system. It collects the money through the framework. So I think that we have to make sure that citizens have this broad access. And of course, after the Second World War, some things were not provided by the state, at least after rationing ended, like food. So people were given sufficient money to ensure that they could buy these basics. Now, if you look now at our narrowly GDP-defined world and promotion of growth, et cetera, et cetera, you know, there's two things that are really striking. One is a general sense that everything's broken, you know, that you can't actually get 
access to a GP anytime soon, that the ambulance might not turn up, that the school roof is crunching, okay, that basic social services are underprovided, that local government isn't working, that the sewers aren't doing the job they're supposed to do, that the rivers are dirty, that the potholes are deep. Now, it's anecdotal, but it's exactly characteristic of not doing the capital maintenance we should be doing, not paying away, and worst of all, thinking we just borrow and borrow and borrow to do this stuff and hope to God the next generation will pay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the inequality, and that's going to be exacerbated by the technologies that are coming. And it should not be the case that a citizen's income is defined by their marginal product, and that's it. So if you don't have a high marginal product, and particularly in the new world of tech-based capital, you know, should you just be dropped off the cliff? And what we've observed is both a major increase in the number of people who are really struggling to participate in the society, struggling to pay their core utility bills, water, electricity, etc., to get to housing, etc., and on top of that, we've got that these basic services, which are so important to individuals, are actually just not being maintained. And that can't go on like that without getting the kind of popularist and other reaction. Perfectly understandable, because these people are left out of the frame. So I'm not a fan of framing it as universal basic income, I have to say. I mean, for heaven's sake, yes, make benefits adequate for people who need them and have a minimum wage and an effective labour market. But you, it's such a Silicon Valley bro approach to put this on the individuals. You can't buy your electricity network or public transport or health system with individual income. So you need to think about those assets. And that's why I would always term it infrastructure rather than income. But there is more going on. It's not just income inequality. It's not just that all of these network industries are degrading and disintegrating. The housing market doesn't house people. The financial services industry rips people off rather than making them richer. The food system is making people obese and damaging the environment. So the whole structure of production as well needs attention. It's not just on the consumption side and what individuals can access. Uh, one bit of that is a very broad understanding of what the polluter pays principle means, which is also part of my sustainable economy. Because, you know, if you're doing, I mean, it's just basically, uh, uh, actually, this is a standard economic concept. It's very useful. It's basically just a huge number of externalities going on here, which ought to be incorporated within the economy. Plus, uh, let's be clear, a lot of market power and some of the regulatory structures enable that. So how is it that an apparently competitive financial services industry perform so badly to serve the public? And that's actually because a lot of market power. How come we don't get the houses built, even though there's 1.7 million permissions already out there? Because we've got an oligopoly. And a lot of this concentration into the power of relatively small numbers is exacerbated by the technological changes. So, you know, 10 companies in the United States dominate the entire Standard & Poor's index. In fact, they're really big in the world index. And this emergence of blocks of power and not paying for the pollution and other externality they cause, that's part and parcel of it too. And that comes back to your central question, which is, you know, we don't have a set of political institutions 
which are fit for purpose and actually capable of delivering this. And instead what we get is Starmer and Sunak basically advocating almost identical policies for the pursuit of economic growth, even the items. Their energy policies are identical. There's virtually not a blip between them in practice. I've never seen such consensus. And that makes it doubly dangerous because it's not only a consensus, you can pretty much predict which way either of them are going to go, but neither of them address the problems that Diana and hopefully I am trying to air in the process. So the, the way that I framed it, which is that there's the short-term pressures and there are the long-term imperatives, and you've both just described to me what sounds like an explanation which suggests that the, the short-term pressures, the democratic frustrations leading to all sorts of electoral outcomes are actually a function of the long-term failures. So in a sense, people are very angry. And one of the reasons they're angry is that the ambulance doesn't come on time, the school is falling down, infrastructure isn't there. And yet it tends to come out in political terms as a demand for immediate action now. So you get from Sunak and Starmer, and I've heard this from people around Starmer, that sense that we've got to respond to people's immediate need for better services and therefore we can't afford necessarily to take too long-term a view. The optimistic take, I think, on what you're both saying is that you have to take the long-term view in order to address the shorter-term pressures, the, the political pressures. But of course, in any democratic system, that is really, really hard to get that balance right because the short-term pressures are so immediate and so relentless. I don't really know what's going on inside the Labour Party as it prepares for government. But it is still so reactive. How then do you shift the political mindset to persuade people, maybe to persuade politicians or maybe to persuade voters, that those immediate short-term frustrations are themselves best addressed by a long-term sustainable perspective? That seems to me to be the challenge because otherwise the danger is these things pull in different directions and then everything just gets worse. You know, in a sense, then you get reactive populist politics, which tears down structures of sustainability in the name of responding to people's demand for action now. That, to me, feels like the political challenge. So I think one of the issues is that that sense of despair almost that people feel in their everyday lives about not being able to get to the hospital or, you know, the state of the rivers is not really part of the public conversation, the political conversation. And that's all, if you like, it's all marginal. It's all, we can do a bit with the tax rates here, or we can do a little bit with green investment there, and and it will all be fine. And of course, it won't. It, take, it needs big action. So I guess my concern would be that unless we have some of that kind of conversation before the election, then whoever wins just isn't going to have a, a mandate to do anything and will be stuck in this low growth trap and unsustainability. So I, I completely agree about that. But I think it needs a, a bigger context. So, you know, where we are now is that none of the basic problems that confront people in everyday life are fixable without longer-term solutions. Okay, It's not just that we have a choice, do we go long-term or short-term? The only thing you can do right now is throw some money at the health service or the education sector service and bail out half people's electricity bills and pay their water bills for them. And there is no money to do that. So you just borrow to do it. Okay, And that's what happened with the electricity bill case. It happened with furlough, etc. But it won't work for very long. 
Okay, and the difference for the election coming up, whether uh, Labour win or Conservatives win, I think it's far too early to tell the answer to that question. But which way you go on this, you finally hit the financial constraint that the markets probably won't stand you trying to just borrow for consumption as a trust started, as started to do in her 45 days or whatever. And where this points to is a, a political observation, which is the following. Reform virtually never happens until after a crisis. And the problem at the moment is that the crises are all out there, but they're not tomorrow morning. Okay? And, and if I think back historically to the big switches where people made longer-term decisions, they are 1945 and after 1979. So 45 is after the war and the destruction of so much stuff that you had no option in a world of food rationing and 98% tax to do a lot about it. And it was remarkable what was achieved despite debt to GDP being 257% um, in the 1940s. And at the end of the 70s, you know, it really did take people not getting buried and the rubbish in the streets to enable whether you think it's a good thing or bad thing is another matter, for the Thatcherites to do what they did. Right now, even the financial crisis of 2006, 2008 and the coronavirus episodes have not yet been enough. So I, I, in one sense, in the short term, I'm very pessimistic. I don't think any of this is going to get addressed before the next election. But what I do say in my book and I, and I have this as a kind of, you know, strap line to the way I think about these problems. You know, nobody in their right minds can think what we're doing, either environmentally or with regard to the core infrastructures of the economy outside natural capital, is sustainable. I've never met anyone who thinks it's sustainable. But they never follow it up with the conclusion. Therefore, it will not be sustained. And the question is, do we have the capacity to do as Diana suggests, which is to get this conversation going. And I think both of us are trying to do that. But in the realisation that actually it's probably not bad enough yet, people put up with an extraordinary amount of decay in services before they, quote, riot in the streets. And, you know, Brexit happened. And even that didn't bring the, the, the castles down. And I worry that we're going to go through one more step of trying to make what we've got for the short-term work. It will make these crises worse, not better. But in the end, there is no option but to address these long-term problems. And the worse they get before you address them, the harder it's going to be to do it. But I don't know a politics which tells people, you know what? Your level of consumption is above the sustainable level. You know what? You can't go on with this degree of inequality that's in place. You know, you can't go on letting the roads, the hospitals, etc. decay because in the end, people die in hospitals because this doesn't work. So there's a politics here, but I don't think the crises are big enough yet to make either of these political parties deal with it. And I think the manifestos of these two parties going to the next election, when you strip away all the rhetoric, are almost identical. And particularly in respect to the infrastructures, I struggle to see hardly any practical difference in the context of, quote, there is no money to just splash into the problems. 
well, this has made me rather depressed because I'm just thinking about the example of Argentina where they have managed to go on for a very long time in sustained decline and not addressing things that inevitably eventually have to be addressed. And look who they've just elected as their president. I mean, if you, re- if you really want to think about one way this could go. But, but if you really want to get, you have to face this. You have to look it in the eyes to see that there must be a better way. But if you look through in the coming year, it's perfectly possible the European Parliament will be right stroke far right after the June elections. That will be dramatic in its long-term effects. It's not inconceivable that Haley is President of the United States in November with a largely Trumpite set of policies. It's not at all implausible to imagine in the beginning of 25 that the AFD, currently scoring 25% in the polls, is in tacit alliance with the CDU-CSU to the right, centre-right. It's not impossible to imagine Marie Le Pen and look what's happened in the Netherlands. And that's part of the crisis you get in politics if you do not offer to people a route through actually addressing the fundamentals. Very few people think that the health service is sustainable in its current form. I I, I struggle to find anybody who thinks that. And very few people think a lot more sticky plaster will make much difference. And if you said we want a, a royal commission, we want to fundamentally rethink, for example, health, my guess is that that actually is a winnable argument. I suspect that the depressing politics of this is why Dita and I spend our energies trying to change the climate of ideas and the way people think about it. Yeah. And although economic statistics might seem very nerdy and you would avoid anybody to party who wanted to talk to you about them, actually, it is the way we understand what's going on. And, and it is fundamentally important to have the right kind of data so that we do know how badly off we are. And the sort of things that Diane's doing and, you know, quite a lot of others are doing, tells you it isn't that we don't know how to do this. It isn't that we don't know how to uh, create something out of this mess which is long-term sustainable. I mean, the ideas need developing. but It's not a shortage of ideas, but at least we have those. There is a framework to take this stuff forward, um, at least a broad one, and it's the duty of academics to try to flesh out those ideas in the realisation that you might not get everything you want immediately, but in the end, the unsustainable will not be sustained, and so we'll have to do this stuff. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Diane, can I ask about the impact of digital technology on these questions? So lots of different things are going on here. 
One possibility is that this technology does give us the means to make new kinds of measurements, to in real time have a clearer sense of what's actually going on. Part of the problem with traditional economic statistics is they're always out of date and so on. On the other hand, what Dita was talking about, which is the political impetus, almost always needs to be some shared experience of crisis. It has to be collective. We're going to get a collective response to this. We need a collective sense of what's at stake. But in the age post the digital revolution, our politics feels more fragmented. And I suspect part of the reason for that is that the experience of a partly online world is fragmenting. It, it is harder actually to, you know, post 1945, though people had almost no means of communicating with each other, they, you know, if you lived in one part of the country, you didn't know about another part of the country. Yet there was a sense that everyone had been through a shared experience. And now it's really hard to get a sense of shared experience in a world, and as, to go back to where we started, Dieter, as you describe, a sort of post-Keynesian world of social influencers and you know, a kind of conspicuous consumption world. And this technology is a real barrier in the web that it gives the illusion of, you know, the sort of Zuckerberg illusion of a connected world, that that's what Facebook and Meta are about, bringing us all together. But, but they're not. What, what it is is a fragmented world. It's a world of fragmented experience. So we might better be able to measure collective experience, but we don't experience it collectively. I think average statistics are much less useful than they used to be because uh, every nation, which is the level at which we collect the standard economic statistics, is just much more varied, much more diverse than used to be the case. And a simple example would be not having noticed because we didn't have the figures what was happening to regional GDP per capita before the Brexit vote. And the conventional statistics can be collected quickly when they're thought to be important. So we, we have monthly GDP now because the Bank of England and the city demands it. So as you say, we, we can collect a lot of information using new techniques and uh, all the data that's available. I guess I think the way that things are fragmenting through online conversations is a bit more complicated. There are the filter bubbles. There's the polarization that's been documented online. But um, I also observe a, a generational difference and actually a much more coherent view among younger generations compared to the older generation. Now, I can't evidence that. Um, it's just a sense from being around a lot of young people in local schools and, and university. So that there are shared experiences going on. They're being shared in different kinds of ways. And I guess the chasm that makes me the most anxious is between the very rich who live in their own physical as well as filter bubble online and and everybody else. And is the coherent view that you sense among a younger generation politically coherent? I mean, is it where is the coherence? Is it a coherent and comparable set of experiences? Or is it an actual outlook, maybe even including an outlook about the long-term future? Well, I think um, a coherent outlook about environmental sustainability, for sure, there's a real generational divide there. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Dita. Um, I, I think that's sort of true, though I'm always struck by people who are demonstrating, supporting, just stop oil tomorrow morning, etc., etc. If you actually look at what they do, 
they do very few sustainable things. And uh, indeed, there's quite a lot of evidence that people who are environmentally aware and campaign, etc., have at least as big environmental footprints as those who don't. So I wonder how, how fundamental it is. But I want to come to a different point about this statistics and information. You know, I'm sure we're going to get much more fine-grained uh, statistical understanding at a much more micro level. That's inevitable. But you always have to remind, what's the question that you want to answer with this data? So if you're Donald Trump, what you want to do is to work out in very great precision how to hit the nerve endings of the voters you want to corral together to support your propositions. That's what, uh, for whatever happened afterwards, that's what Dominic, Dominic Cummings was really good at in the Brexit campaign and getting that vote out, etc. So I think that there is a sense in which this data that's much more micro is in the political sense, quite dangerous. But I'd say one thing optimistic about this. I mean, all new technologies are very disruptive, the big general purpose technologies. Nobody really understands how they work originally. There's always reactions. There's dystopian novels about how they're going to destroy the world, etc. But I suspect we've just about got to a point where people are sifting through all of this and working out how to bed it down. So it's now that we're talking about online safety. It's now we're talking about privacy. It's now about we're talking about access to information, the use of it. And my guess is the politics of this are beginning to settle down. And I also think that while it is true that people have become more isolated and communities have been damaged, high streets have basically disappeared as focal points for people, the backlash to that is a huge desire to reconstruct those communities going forward. And there's obviously a politics about this, as well as economics, about how to get the benefits of that integration. And whether it's about getting people to stop working from home and getting back into the office and being part of that community, or whether it's uh, volunteer activities, and the environmental movement is full of these, I'm a bit more optimistic that people are reacting to this, coming back to it, and there's quite a possibility that there's no reason why we can't recreate communities, that um, the first wave of the technology moves into second. And never forget the benefits we've got, enormous, compared with my typewriter and my Tipex and the carbon paper. It really is possible to access all sorts of stuff and information and knowledge and people who one actually does want to get connected with, even if they're at the other side of the planet. It's fantastically enriching, as well as being challenging at the local level. So just reflecting on this, one thing that's occurred to me is that it's um, a kind of joining up a community that's been enabled by online activity that, that is the source of so much misinformation and conspiracy theories. And that's the sort of sad blokes who used to sit in the corner of the pub renting and they would be by themselves. They have now been able to join up to really quite damaging effect. But I'm quite optimistic about local communities. I think there's still an awful lot of that going on around schools and temples and so on. Yeah, and I think it's part of social capital that is a public as well as a private good. And the politics of this has to provide a framework, not just of chucking money at this problem, but actually valuing it and reinforcing it. And again, I'm quite optimistic about that. But it depends whether this wave settles down 
or whether AI and quantum computing and the genetics, etc., push us forward so rapidly into a further turmoil of uh, of change of the way world, the world works, that, you know, there's not any sort of what I call settling moment, as there was when electricity became widely available, as there was when, you know, water cleaned up and, and, and other great infrastructure changes that happened in the past. I agree that I think there probably are lots of reasons to be optimistic about the possibilities at the local level. I'm not sure there's so many reasons to be optimistic about the possibilities at the international level. And we've got the nation state somewhere in between the two. And Dita, you write a lot in your book about when you talk about what needs to happen. And and you, I think you admit this is a pragmatic response to a world in which the international institutions don't exist. In an ideal world, we would do more of this at the international level, particularly around the principle of the polluter pays, because so much of this crosses national borders. But nonetheless, your focus is on national constitutions, a sort of a reimagining of, say, in the UK context of our national constitution, on sovereign wealth funds, and that word "sovereign" is in there. You know, this is this is a world of sovereign states and sovereign wealth funds of citizenship. When we say universal basic X or Y, by universal we mean for the citizens of this state. We don't mean for the citizens of the world. Is that pragmatism just a necessary response to? the way the world has been organized for hundreds of years now, and it would be utopian to push for something that is more collective at the international level. And I partly ask this because on this podcast, I've been having an ongoing series of conversations with the political theorist Leia Ippi, in which she keeps coming back to the fact that in her view, the absence of international democracy, either as an idea or as a political program, is the barrier in the way of any of this ultimately being rescuable. Is there a danger that the, doing it pragmatically at the national level is still avoiding the central question, which is in, in a world of enormous global inequalities and all the things that you've described are even greater when you see it from outer space at a global level? So I don't, I don't think this is just pragmatic. The starting point is quite a philosophical point. I think you have to construct solutions to these problems on the basis of human nature as it is, not how you would imagine ideal citizens to be. So in, for example, the climate change debate, you know, the standard treatments of this and in biodiversity, the utilitarian ones, treat utility as equal, independent of which individual it acquires, applies to, or independent of when you live. It's a nice idea. We're all equal. Every individual counts for one. And utility is what we're maximising and we should be as concerned about utility in 100,000 years as we are now. And we should be as concerned about utility for people in Darfur today as we are in Oxford or Cambridge. Okay? Now, human nature isn't like that. We are designed to care more about our family, our local community, our wider community, our region, and only after that when you've dropped the stone in the pool, do the ripples work out further? Now, I'm, I, I don't want in any way to suggest I'm not interested in international justice or international redistribution, but we live in a world where 0.5% of GDP is the maximum we're really actually politically prepared to devote to aid going elsewhere. And I couple that with the idea, which we were discussing earlier, that you really need to re recreate and reinforce the fabric of local communities. Okay, the internationalist argument, let's solve all climate change with 
another 27 cops or whatever. You know, that's the notion which fed through into the Brexit argument about the metropolitan elites who, as someone once said, I think one prime said, you know, citizens of nowhere and all that stuff. Well, there's a real sense in which the idea of the international cosmopolitan is not what's embedded in human nature. And that's why I construct, for example, ways of addressing climate change through unilateral coalitions of the willing. That's why it's a techie point, but I believe passionately we should pursue carbon consumption and not territorial carbon production. We should look at the consumption side. We should treat the imports of steel, for example, the same way as we treat steel domestically. And once you start applying border charges for pollution in, say, climate change, it's a no-brainer, as my colleague Cameron Hepburn and I wrote quite a long time ago, that you'd rather pay the carbon tax to your domestic government and spend the money accordingly than you would pay it to the country you're exporting to because you don't have a comparative carbon tax at home. I'm very passionate about, about how you construct those coalitions that are willing bottom up. If you think the salvation of our world lies in the UN solving these problems, you've got decades of history which demonstrate anything but. And on climate change, just remember that since 1990, we started on this process and the 27 COPs. We've added two parts per million every single year to the carbon concentration in the atmosphere, and we're still 80% dependent on fossil fuels globally and 75% in this country. These solutions really do take either an extremely long time or don't work at all. And therefore, I think you should look at it the other way around, and I want to build up this principle of citizens and entitlement within the framework of local communities and, yes, the nation-state, because I think that fits closer to what human nature is rather than what many utilitarians would like it to be. I completely agree about not waiting for international solutions because they're never going to happen. But I'm actually more optimistic than saying you need to build coalitions of the willing. And the carbon border adjustment mechanisms are a good example of that. If enough countries start doing them, then it's simple game theory, really, to say that pretty much every country will follow because it's in their interest to do so once that other once that others have started doing it. And it's working, right? The proliferation of carbon pricing, the CBAM for the EU, um, uh, this really is having considerable impact, whereas the pursuit of territorial carbon emissions in the UK and the pretense that we're making great progress in the UK on climate change, which we're not, uh, that those statistics produce, doesn't. And that's, again, how do we end up um, saying, for example, to give you a, a really recent case, a Grangemouth, it's proposed that, that the biggest refinery in the UK is closed in Scotland. If you're pursuing territorial carbon emissions, great, it's a tick. Your emissions have gone down. You close the thing. And instead, you're just going to import the stuff instead. And our carbon consumption is, you can argue about precisely what the numbers are, but recent estimates say something like 50% higher than our carbon production. So if you want to stop causing climate change, if you really care about that, as the Climate Change Committee suggested it cared about in pursuing net zero, it's a completely different ask from the one which has the convenient characteristic that if we just close down local production in the UK and the local communities and the jobs that go with it, 
that somehow because that lowers our own emissions, it helps solve the problem. So it's exactly those kind of building coalitions the willing with a proper approach to carbon pricing, which then encourages others, as, as Diane says through any game theory will show this, to join that coalition. And it's going quite a lot better than COP28 is going. So I've got one more question, which is about timeframes. So I absolutely take your point. <laughs> Waiting for international justice, you might wait and the world will have ended before you get there. But we've got a whole range of time horizons that anyone taking political decisions has to face. So if you think about, for instance, the creation of a sovereign wealth wealth fund. So Norway, as I understand it, has you know, took an early decision because of the windfall of oil to create a sovereign wealth fund. And then there are decisions about when and how it's deployed. But that's, that's still a generational project. So say in the case of the UK, Dieter, we want to embed some of the things that you talk about. And you say it needs a constitutional rethink. And there's always going to be a question with you. If you said to Keir Starmer, absolutely bedrock to getting a sustainable economy up and running is actually to have a constitutional convention. And we we rethink some of the basic ways in which we structure and organize our politics. We empower local communities. We empower certain kinds of expert oversight or regulatory bodies to do the things that have to happen. We can't just do it with off what and off gen and all that. And he would say, but we don't have the time, right? I, I don't have the political capital to take time out of addressing what people want for a constitutional convention. And I've always thought that the the thing that would have triggered that was Scottish independence. I thought that if Scottish independence happened, the UK would have to have a complete constitutional rethink, but it's now not going to happen. So, so there's that problem. If you said to Starmer, we've got to build up a sovereign wealth fund, and then we've got to think in terms of those kinds of long-term assets, he would say, that's too long-term for me. So, so there is the time horizon of international justice into the distance. But even the things that you're talking about are at odds with the, the, the rhythms of democratic politics. And while all this is happening, what you also described is happening, you know, the Dutch elections took place and people have said it's because it was a sort of vote against migration policies. It wasn't. My understanding of it is it was a vote against green policies. And you will get that, as you say, potentially repeated around Europe. So how do we, uh, I, I don't want to sound remotely sort of defeatist about this, but how do we frame it so that you're not vulnerable to what you have said about the international justice warriors, which is actually what you're describing operates on a time horizon which is simply outside the time horizons of democratically elected politicians. You know, I'm very clear in the book. I say I've set out what I think the sustainable economy would look like, right? And I've set out what the characteristics of that sustainable economy comprise of, okay? And I think it's really important that if you think the current world is unsustainable, that you have an idea in your mind just like you should have a mind idea in your mind of what a good democracy would look like when you're describing the current one. So I don't apologise for that. But if you look at where we are at the moment, okay, so, you know, Starmer might say, and Sunak might say, and I'm and unlike most people, I make no assumption about who's going to win this next election, and I actually think they're on very, very similar territory once you strip away the rhetoric, okay? What they'll say is, you know, what we've got to do is do lots of investment. And what we've got to do is borrow loads of money for this, this wall of finance coming your way. Well, just look at it. 
and think what it's going to do. So we run a current account deficit. So we have we import more than we export. And we have to have foreigners lend us the money to buy the stuff that we're not exporting to cover. And at one point recently, that was 8% of GDP, as high as during two of the years in the Second World War. We don't have any government savings. We have government borrowing, governments in deficit. The private sector, much of which is now foreign-owned because we've had to sell off the family silver to live beyond our means, profits equal dividends. There's hardly any retained earnings or reinvestment in British industry as it currently constructs. The corporate sector does not save for investment now. That's a fantastically dangerous change. And then when we come to domestic consumers, they're strapped for cash, affordability crisis, and we don't save for pensions. So what I think Sama ought to look in the face and ask himself, is he going to end up in 1979? Does he really think that it's going to work? And if he thinks he's going to have two terms in office, and that's perfectly possible, the Tories might rip themselves to bits. Does he want to have a denouement at the end, which is just that crisis, which would force this radical rethinking? And my guess is that actually what he's proposing will not deliver that outcome. I have no idea how they're going to be the fastest growing GDP economy in the G7. Presumably, they're going to run the other six as well. Balak might get them there. But I doubt it very much. We're basically dependent on the kindness of strangers. And what Starmer doesn't grasp... I think occasionally Sunak does, but can't do anything about it. It's just how precarious the position in the UK is. It's not just about crumbling infrastructures. It's about the whole framework in which we expect foreigners to chuck us very large sums of money because we don't save for invest investment. And of course, Keynes thought investment causes savings. I don't. I think savings are the bedrock of investment. And that's how China did it. Japan did it. Germany did it, South Korea did it, Taiwan did it. High personal savings, high savings ratio in the economy, producing the investment which generated the economic growth. Starmer's riding towards a really quite nasty crisis after he's been in power for some time. And that may have the effect that he may be the next uh, Labour prime minister or not, but there may be a big gap after that. And then you have to think who succeeds if Labour ends up in the kind of mess that it did in 1979. So I, I think he should have a bit of courage. And if he's 20% ahead in the opinion polls, do you really think the electorate at the moment are up for being told a few fundamental truths about the state of the economy? I suspect he's got the bandwidth, but not the courage to address that agenda. But neither have the Tories. So that's back to the consensus we find ourselves in. So Dieter's gone big picture. I'm going to go small picture. So I think there are grounds for hope in English devolution, actually, because that's the politics of the places people live and where they have their daily experiences. In 2009, I was involved in the Manchester Independent Economic Review, which was adopted by the leadership there. And one of the key strands was putting money into primary education to tackle inequalities within Greater Manchester, which is a policy that has a 20, 18, 20 year payoff. And so there was enough concern and consensus locally about the inequalities that people saw every day that they were able to do that. It is concerning, I think, that green policies are becoming such a political fracture. And, you know, we see that here. It's not just in, in the Netherlands. 
And I, th- I fear it's because sustainability policies are seen to be the domain of posh people who've got degrees, who live in cities, and they talk, they theorize about 15-minute cities and all of that. It's really about making people's lives better. So I would tie to all of the big concerns about climate change and biodiversity, the environment in which people live, and not just planting the trees and the flowers, but making sure that high streets have got NHS hubs in them. So in a way that will parallel Mrs. Thatcher's genius of giving people free houses and free shares, you've got to give something immediate and link that to these longer term aims. So that's how I would approach the politics of it. Dieter Helm's book is called Legacy, How to Build the Sustainable Economy. It's published by Cambridge University Press and it's available open access. What that means is you can download it for free and I would encourage you to do that. It's a really important book. I don't think I agree with everything in it, but it matters. You just need to go to Cambridge Core and search for Dieter Helm Legacy and you will see how you can get the book for free. You can buy it too, but it is free. We will tweet the link at PPF Ideas to Diane Coyle's report that she mentioned on universal basic infrastructure. Coming up on Past, Present, Future, we're going to wrap up our series on the great essays and the great essayists. And I'm going to do one final round of attempting to answer your many questions about the episodes that we've done to this point. If you have any more, do please share them with us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. I will try to get to as many of them as I can. And we'll also let you know what we're going to be doing at Christmas, which is putting out all 12 episodes in that series, one a day, every day, for the 12 days of Christmas. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.